So it, it seems that Christ, as revealed in the scriptures, being enough for us, is the dividing line between those who are authentic followers of Christ versus those who are pretenders. That Christ, as revealed in the scriptures, is enough for me. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we would see Jesus. Please open up our eyes and our ears and our hearts, O Lord, to your word this morning, that we may carefully hear it, respond, receive it, willingly, and follow you, serve you. I pray, O oh God, that you would find in us hearts that are dedicated fully to the Lord Jesus Christ as our Lord and our Savior. I pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. So what is the most common utterance in a hospital? It's the word stat. Stat. To the ER, Dr. Lesser, stat. I used to watch hospital shows. I don't watch them so much anymore. Lynn still likes to watch them. I got statted out. Too many stats. Do you know what it means? It's a Latin word. It shouldn't surprise us in the medical world that it would be Latin. It's short for statum, which means immediately. I might try it this week. Pastor Mark to my office, stat. <laughs> Will it work? <laughs> I've titled the sermon today, Salvation Stat. Would you turn to John chapter 12? And the reason for that is that although we are a long way from the end of the book of John, in fact, there's another 10 chapters to go, this is the end of Jesus' public ministry. You'll find in this chapter that he hides himself from the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and the crowd and all the skeptics and all the cynics. From this point forward, it's just Jesus and his disciples and it's truncated into about a week. And we have watched, we have seen over the past little while that there's an urgency about salvation that Jesus presents. He presents the reality that the light is here for a while, but it is going away. You need to deal with this. Uh, throughout the scriptures, it's, there's an urgency to deal with God. It's not a new concept. It's an ongoing concept. You see it everywhere. Today, if you hear his word, do not harden your hearts. Today is the day of salvation. There's a constant urgency, but... Jesus places one more sense of urgency on his ministry, the sense of immediacy. You need to deal with this. You need to deal with the light. 
concerning the matter of salvation. Now, Jesus has frequently acknowledged that his hour is not yet. We've heard this also repeatedly. His hour is not yet, but that's going to change in this chapter today. The limited availability of the light, the opportunity is time limited. And all of that is highlighted by the fact that some Greeks showed up six days before Passover and asked if they could see Jesus. They went to Philip, probably because Philip is a Greek name. Figured he might be sympathetic to help them. It's at that point in verse 23 that Jesus says this because the time timer now was triggered. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Literally, gather round, stat. Salvation is something that must not be delayed. So in this chapter, and it's a long one, and many of you are going to think, well, he's going to spend time talking about the anoint, Mary's anointing of Jesus and all that. No, you've heard that before. We're going to look at that, but rather quickly. Well, maybe he'll spend some time on the triumphal entry this morning. No, we've looked at that before. We're going to give a couple of comments on it. I want to look more at the section today from verse 20 to the end of the chapter, which we often have, do not deal with very much. It's a hard part, but an important part for us. So I want to look this morning at, at, Jesus, at how John outlines Jesus' final appeal to faith, because that's what this is. His final appeal to faith with some salvation essentials that you need this morning, because Jesus would soon be gone. And, and I think we should come every Sunday with anticipation because we have no idea where the time clock is with the Father. We have no idea. This could be our last Sunday gathering. There's always an urgency to the things of God. Whenever you pick up the Bible and you read it, there's an urgency to what you read that you must apply what God speaks to your heart. But today we... We find ourselves in urgency. We could be in the last days of the last days. So Father, I pray that you would seriously move in our hearts this morning. According to your word, in Jesus' name I pray, amen. John 12, six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany where Lazarus lived. Remember him, the guy raised from the dead? Here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served. Well, that's nothing new. While Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. And then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. 
As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. So let's kill the evidence. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it, as it is written. Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. Now the crowd that was with him, when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had given this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Now there were some Greeks from the whole world among those who went up to worship at the feast. They came to Philip, who was, with, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now my heart is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said, it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. The crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that the Christ will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus told them, You are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. The man who walks in the dark does not know where he is going. Put your trust in the light while you have it so that you may become sons of light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. Even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, Lord, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? 
For this reason they could not believe, because as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and deadened their hearts so that they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Yet at the same time, many among, even among the leaders, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not confess their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved praise from men more than praise from God. Then Jesus cried out, When a man believes in me, he does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. When he looks at me, he sees the one who sent me. I have come into the world as a light, so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. As for the person who hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save it. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. That very word which I spoke will condemn him at the last day. For I did not speak of my own accord, but the Father who sent me commanded me what to say and how to say it. I know that his command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. Well, this is the word of God. So let's quickly look at the front end of this chapter. And I just want to make a comment, first of all, in terms of what Mary did for Jesus, this. That extravagant service is characteristic of those deeply aware of both their rescue from sins and the value of knowing Christ. What was Mary up to? Simply that, extravagant service for the Lord. And we ought to seize the moment as, as well ourselves. When God puts something extravagant on your heart to do for the Lord, you ought to just do it. Do it right then and there. Don't put it off. If you hesitate, it will be too late. Mary took the opportunity to anoint Jesus and it was going to be in a few days that she would not have the opportunity to do that again. And so extravagant service is something you should do when God puts on your heart. Do things for Christ stat. Don't be dissuaded by the naysayers. Don't be dissuaded by the pra practical people among you. Like Judas, who said, oh, couldn't this money have been better used to take care of the poor? You can make much, and so Jesus goes on to say, look it, I'm not going to be here for very long. The poor will always be around. Do something extravagant when God puts it on your heart to do. There will always be opportunity to do other ministry going forward. Now, let me just make a comment on Judas while we're at it. Judas was probably gifted in finance. You know, as they looked around at all the 12 and they were like, who should be the treasurer among us? Well, it should be Judas. He knows RSPs and all kinds of things like that. He's like the guy. Everybody asks him stuff. What should I do in my tax return? How, should I, how can I get the best return from Caesar? Can I write off these sandals as part of the business? This was Judas. Now listen, he was good at it. That's why they gave him the job of being the finance, the treasurer. Your gift, listen, your gift can be your greatest blessing 
but it is always, also, almost always your greatest risk. Because with your gift, you bless the Lord and you bless his people. But it is your gift wherein most temptation comes. The temptation to receive glory for yourself. The temptation to take, take uh, honor for, for what you've done. To take the credit for what you have and the skills that you have. So be very, very aware. of what your gift can both do and what it can bring your way. There's a second point I want to make from this second section of the triumphal entry and those who were uh, crowding around Jesus at the time. Uh, and, and it sort of, it, it leaps out at verses like the verse 9. A large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus. And then down in verse 18, the Pharisees noted that they were coming around in verse 18. Many people, because they had heard that he had given this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. Signs, wonders, and miracle chasers don't last in the kingdom of the saved. Beware of being a spiritual sightseer. I hope you came to church this morning just to see Jesus, just to encounter Jesus, just to hear from Jesus, just to offer your praise to Jesus. Not to be a spiritual sightseer. Oh, I hope there's something interesting at church today besides just seeing Jesus. So they came not only because of Jesus, but also because of Lazarus. They wanted to see a miracle. This carries forth from what we've talked about before. Is Jesus only as good to you as he is the means for you to get from him what you really want? Because that's the reason most of Israel turned away from Jesus. He didn't bring them what they really wanted. In fact, what the sections of Scripture that John is referencing here, Isaiah uh, 6 and Isaiah 53, particularly Isaiah 53, make the point that the coming Messiah is not going to be like what everybody's going to want. He's going to be lowly. There's going to be nothing in his look that attracts people to him. He's going to be some sort of star conqueror. He's going to come and die for their sins. He's going to be rejected of man. He's, he's, not, he's not going to be the, the in-crowd guy. That's, in Isaiah 6, it talks about Isaiah seeing Jesus. Well, in that 
vision, he sees the Lord high and lifted up and the train fills the whole temple. And all around him are crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. They didn't want a holy God and a lowly Messiah, a, a, a holy Messiah who would require of them pure living. No, that, that's not what they were looking for. They didn't want a lowly Messiah who wasn't going to come in and kick Rome out. And so it is with us. Christ is who he is. He will not be who you want him to be. And that needs to be enough. That must be enough. It means you won't always get what you want from Christ. Why are you a Christian? Those of you here this morning who are online, why are you a Christian? Are you a Christian just to get eternal life? Because that's, that's not the only reason that Jesus saved you. In fact, the main reason that Jesus saved you is to be with you. That you might love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and body. That he, in and of himself, might be enough for you. It is enough that we would see Jesus. So this flows into Jesus' teaching that I want to spend most of our time on here. Starting in verse 20 and on. Jesus points out that it's now glorification time. His glory is to be revealed. Ah, that's what we want to get to. We want to get into his glory. We want to get into the conquering Messiah. Yeah, that's it. And then he says, right juxtaposed to the time of his glory. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. This, we go on to find out, is the glory that he's talking about. His glory was to do the Father's will and die on a cross for you and for me. The truly saved Jesus is going to go on to teach in this section, trade their lives of self-love for servant sacrifice to Christ as he sets and models for us what it means to serve the Father. It's cross time, not time for personal dominance, prosperity. No, it's cross time Cross time for Jesus and cross time for his followers, us. How do we glorify God? 
in presenting our bodies as living sacrifices, just holy, acceptable, pleasing to the Lord. This is what he's teaching. He's now teaching a shocking truth that life is going to come only from his death. And he sets in motion a law for us, the law of the kingdom, with respect to this agricultural illustration. The law of the kingdom, the meaning of this hour. Kingdom is like agricultural life. Like a seed that must die and go into the ground. And unless it goes into the ground and dies, it will not produce fruit. It will not grow. You can have a bag of seeds all you like. You have seeds. You know what they're like. Corn seeds, whatever seeds you have in a bag. They can sit there for years in, those, in that bag and do nothing, produce nothing. You have to take them out. You have to bury them. They have to die. They might come to life and bear fruit. Jesus is talking about the law of the kingdom. This is how it works. We're not, by the way, saved by the good example of Jesus Christ. Or by following his example, we're not saved by the wonderful teaching of Jesus Christ. We're saved by the death of Jesus Christ, his burial and his resurrection. Likewise, his disciples. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Is Jesus calling us to be suicidal? Is that what he's calling us to? Is he asking us to loathe our life? To hate every second that we're alive? Is that what Jesus is saying here to you? In order for you to really be a disciple of Jesus, you have to wander around and say, oh, I hate my life. Is that what he's talking about here? No, it's really important to see what he's talking about here. In fact, you need to see the phrase in the second, when he says, who hates his life, in this world. The original language helps a lot, but so does that phrase. When Jesus talks about life here, and then he talks about eternal life, we see the word life. They saw two different words in the original. The first is that Jesus says, the man who loves his suke will lose it. Life, meaning the life, self-life, the personal sovereignty life, the, the life where of your ambitions and your desires, where they reside, that life, that's what Jesus is talking about here. He's saying, unless a man or a woman hates that life in contrast to serving me, your own self-idolatry, your own ambitions, your own desires, where that resides in your, in your life, the suke life, unless you're willing to give that over, Unless you're willing to put that aside, you will lose your life. Because you won't come to me. You won't serve me. You will serve yourself. You will only serve yourself. You will only want to serve yourself. And if you want to have Zoe life, eternal life, real life, you must 
turn aside from that self-love life, the, the life that, that holds your significance and your security. We give that over now that our significance is now not in ourselves but in Christ. Our security is no longer in ourselves or the things that we have, but in Christ. That's the exchange that's made in this true discipleship life that Jesus is calling us to, the law of the kingdom, like a seed that dies in the ground. In order to say yes to God, you have to say no to yourself a lot, don't you? Haven't you discovered that already? You can't say yes to yourself and yes to God at the same time, hardly ever. It's a struggle. Being fully involved in what Jesus wants you and I to be doing. Whoever serves me must follow me and where I, and where I am, my servant also will be. We find out where Jesus wants us to be. Where Jesus, what Jesus wants us to do. What does he want us to believe? What does he want us to say no to? Our world is totally given over to the suke. Totally given over to self-fulfillment and personal sovereignty. And it is being manifest in ways we never imagined could ever happen. People are actually changing their biological reality. They are so into their own selves that they are mechanically altering the natural to accommodate the idolatry of self. That's what this is. It used to be more hidden, it used to be more buried. Now it's brought out into the open for all of us to see. And Jesus says, unless you say no to that life, you can't say yes to me. And then Jesus talks about the reality that this is essential salvation now Verse 27, now my heart is troubled. And what shall I say? I don't know whether a question mark is even appropriate here. I think Jesus might have said, Father, save me from this hour. Because we know that he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane and starts praying that way. Drops, sweat drops of blood pouring from him. And it is in that agony that he responds to the Father because he always responds to the Father. I, I don't know that he talked himself out of it right here because it doesn't make sense then that he went into the Garden of Gethsemane and started praying urgently, asking his disciples to pray for him urgently. So, um, this is the question mark's not inspired, by the way. There is no punctuation in the original. So I'm not throwing out heresy here on you. It's not a, you can take that question mark out if you want to. It's out on mine. No, it was for this very hour I came to this. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Glorifying the Father happens when we obey the will of the Father, and Jesus is demonstrating this. But know this, Jesus talks now. He knows exactly what's 
this means, what's happening to him. And he says, now, the second now, now my heart is troubled, now the second now in verse 31, now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. When I am lifted up from the earth, which is to be put on the cross, because he, he says, that's a, John gives commentary, this is the kind of death he was going to die, I will draw men to myself. In this series of nows, we need to understand something about essential salvation that is occurring at this moment, is about to occur. The world has now been placed at a watershed moment. The last days are about to be inaugurated. It's all or nothing. This is the, this is the, the dividing line of history. This is the watershed moment of history. From this point forward, the, the lines are clear. They're not muddled anymore. You were either on the side of Satan or you're on the side of God. That's what this is. That's why he talks about now judgment, now the time for judgment. Now is the time of judgment on this world. This is judgment time. Now, now we all know that the ultimate judgment is yet to come, but this is the moment, this is the time where the world is now being judged by God. This is the moment. The reality of salvation is upon us. Christ is about to be lifted up for all to see. In fact, in the Easter address, I heard our prime minister say that his family joins with all people all over Canada to celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Our prime minister knows has seen, has heard. This is the point that is being made in this text. The reality of the decision that the world must make has been put on public display at Calvary 2,000 years ago. It is not hidden. You can't hide. You can only receive or reject this. There's no people in the world who can say, I abstain. Consider me an abstainer, the agnostic thing. Please, give me a break. There's no agnostic thing, okay? There's believe or disbelieve. That's it in this world. The way of God is not hidden. You judge for yourself against this reality. You, you, judge, you, judge, you literally judge yourself based on this reality. That's what this judgment that he's talking about, the judgment on this world, is now time. And the ruler of this world is now defeated. Satan has no more claim on us. Satan has no opportunity anymore to come to you and say, you, you're still in your sins. You, there's, there's unforgiven stuff in you. We have been forgiven of every sin. 
And the lifting is multiplied. He's lifted onto the cross. He, get, he is lifted from the grave. He is lifted into heaven. There's this grand lifting that goes on. Now, it's at, this, at this point, as John is writing this, of course, reflecting 60 years later, that we understand, we infer that something was going on with John and his teaching and message. It appears that John likely had a problem on his hands. Now, John, the apostle, was in the area of Ephesus. That's where he was pastoring. He was exiled and he was pastoring, you know. And, and likely the problem that he was having is with the Jews that he was teaching 60 years later who were struggling to buy into Messiah, the Messiah, Jesus. And they were struggling to buy into the Messiah, Jesus, because as he's recounting all of this and as they hear the message, so many of their countrymen rejected Jesus. And, and they're, they're saying, I, I, don't, I don't know why we should be willing to respond and, and accept this Jesus as Messiah you're talking about when, in fact, most of the Jews rejected him. It says in verse 37, even after Jesus had done all of these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. It's here that, that John rehearses for them from the book of Isaiah the history of the Jews. And he digs into Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 6 when he says, this was to fulfill, verse 38, the word of Isaiah the prophet, Lord, who has believed our message? At the time Isaiah was writing this, the vast majority of Jews were rejecting God. They were rejecting his message. The vast majority, and he says, to whom has the, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? It's been revealed to Israel. Israel has seen all the great and mighty deeds of God over the generations, and yet they continue to reject him. And John is able to say to his countrymen in Ephesus, those in the diaspora who had gone there, he was able to say to them, this has been our history. Oh, time and time again, God has demonstrated his great love for us and his great patience and his, his grace to us his arm has been extended to us to save us and, and we have rejected him over and over and over again. When Messiah came, it was just common practice for the Jews to reject the gift of God to them of his love. And the reason so few enter into salvation is not the failure of God, John says, it's not because God hasn't done enough. It's not because God hasn't given to us his Messiah and his glorious salvation. It's not God who has failed. It's we who have failed to believe. What is all of this? What are these? Why was this all written? That you might believe that Jesus is the 
Christ. And that by believing, you might have life in his name. This is salvation. Believing God. Abraham, what? Believed God. That's it. And it was counted unto him as righteousness. It's not believe plus, it's, not, it's believe in Jesus. Believe what God says. Believe what God has given you. The great mystery of, of unbelief is the default position of humanity. Nobody is neutral. Though he had done many signs before them, they were still not believing him. It's God's fault, people say. It's because of the sovereignty of God. He's the one who chooses who will believe and who won't believe. So it's his fault. He decides. God is sovereign for sure, but he is not arbitrary. And listen, God, the Bible requires you to hold two tensions together at the same time that drive you crazy and me crazy. But you have to hold them. God is sovereign, totally sovereign and in charge of this universe. But man is fully accountable. Those two things don't merge in the pea brain of humans. They don't, but they're both true. And you will get messed up if you don't believe this. God is not sovereignly assigning neutral people to this or to that. We have all gone astray like sheep. We all reject. No one is neutral. God is graciously saving rebellious people. And the stress on Jesus' ministry was he was urgently appealing to them all over and over and over again, calling an urgency, standing before the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the unbelievers, the skeptics, and saying, the light is going to be here for a little while longer. Re respond. But he came to his own, and his own would not receive him. Time for belief is urgent. Opportunity is timed. Like ancient history, God displayed his power, his creation. He displays his glory over and over again. He pleads with all, yet including you who are here this morning or have been graciously brought to church year after year by God, and he continues to call on you, keeps showing you truth, has shown his truth to our prime minister, who testified himself that he knows. People are not lost because God has failed, but because they refuse to believe. And listen carefully. There is a time limit to unbelief. Persistent unbelief. John goes on to remind everyone what Isaiah said, for this reason they could not believe. 
What was the reason? Because they would not believe. Right before it. They would not believe because they could not believe, and they could not believe because they would not believe. And so he has blinded their eyes, deadened their hearts. God judges in our time. That's why Jesus said, now is the time for judgment. I thought that was at the end. When you got saved, the age to come, eternal life, was brought to your life right then. You are living in the age to come as far as salvation is concerned. That eternal life that you are going to get, you have now. But there, come, there comes a time when there is a judicial hardening on hearts over repeated unbelief, unbelief, unbelief in the face of truth, the grace of God over and over again, the light, the light, the light, but darkness is coming. And that darkness is not just reserved for the end. It happens in real time. Eventually, judgment from the age to come settles on a present heart so that they cannot believe because they would not believe anymore. That's why today is the day of salvation for everyone. So as I've said so many times to you and to anyone who's willing to listen, if you can believe, believe. There is no guarantee that tomorrow you will be able to believe. If you can believe today, believe. Father, I thank you for your grace, your incredible grace to us who have turned our back rebelliously on you and yet you graciously brought truth to us. You're bringing truth today. You're bringing people online today. You're making your word clear today you are prompting hearts to believe today so this is salvation stat time I pray oh God that people would believe for your sake for the glory of God in Jesus name I pray amen Jesus key illustration for helping people to understand the urgency of opportunity was the worldwide flood when Jesus was talking about the need for urgency he reminded them that the final days will be like the days of Noah 
people were marrying, stressed people were marrying and given in marriage. Why did he stress that? Because, and we're continuing to do that as we celebrate marriages. And the celebration of a marriage, you're thinking about the whole life you have together ahead of you. You have all the time in the world. And Jesus said, while they were doing that, the flood came. In spite of the fact that Noah had been preaching and warning them to turn to God, to turn away from their sin. And there came a moment when the door of the ark shut and the rain started. And those who refused to believe were swept away. We have no idea what moment we're in, none of us. Not a single one. But we have this moment right now. And the offer of salvation is available right now. So, if you can believe, believe. If you would like to speak to one of us, pray with you in the connections room or here at the front, pastors will be here. Love to talk to you. Father, we thank you so much for your truth, for your grace, for the fact that the window of salvation is open. May many seize the moment and receive Christ as Lord and Savior, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.